You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 11. God's mercy on Israel. I ask then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God they are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day he has shut their eyes so they do not see, and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life for those who were dead. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of a tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just the branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ, and you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. 
Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. God's mercy is for everyone. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved, as the scriptures say. The one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, and this benefits you Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once, you Gentiles were rebels against God. But when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience, so he could have mercy on everyone. The reason that we often pick up these hard, difficult verses and, and find them strange and weird and perplexing is because we go to the text asking, what is in this for me? It's talking about Israel. What is in it, what's in it for me? And it's just, it's just not the right posture. Yes, we want to be in the Word. It's our, our milk and our meat. We want to get into it and fill ourselves. But the primary reason we read the Scriptures is because in the Scriptures we discover God and who He is and what His character is. And so I want to encourage you as we dive into this difficult, mysterious treasure, keep in mind, what does this tell me about who God is? What does this tell me about His nature? What does that tell me about how I can worship him for who he is. So let me pray for us to that end. If you'd like to bow your heads. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does not return void. And so I pray this morning that as you open up Romans 11, we would see you as big and glorious and majestic and powerful as you really are. I pray that it would soften us, that our hard hearts would become soft in your word and by your grace and by your spirit. And we pray that having read Romans 11, we will be encouraged to go out and make all of life all about Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. So, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Romans over more than one week, if you've opened up the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, you'll know that Israel is sort of a big deal. Right? You'll probably know that um, Israel has a special relationship with God. And you'll probably know that almost all of the characters we hear about, we read about, we speak about from Abraham and David to Esther and Ruth to Paul and Peter are not modern Australians, they're not Western Christians, they're Jews, they're Israelites, they're God's special people. 
And yet there's a perplexing problem that we come into contact with when we open up the book of Acts or the book of Romans. It seems like God's chosen people, it seems like the people that God has a special relationship have rejected Him. See, Israel has been waiting for a saviour for not just uh, a month, not just a year, not just um, decades, but centuries. And we, we see this. Um, let me read out this, this passage from the book of Isaiah, a favourite, that speaks of who Jesus will be from Isaiah 53. It says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. But surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so Israel has been waiting for this Savior that was going to buy them peace, that was going to have their sins laid upon him. They've been waiting patiently for Jesus. And yet, when we open up Acts, it's crushing. Let me read from Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon to his Jewish audience. He says, fellow Israelites, fellow Jews, Jews, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did amongst you through him, as you yourselves know. And this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross." And so we find this perplexing problem that the promised Savior, the Son of God, has come and Israel has rejected Him. And we're left with this question. Has God rejected His people? Has God left His promises to Israel? Why are the Jews forsaking the Savior? Why are the Jews forsaking the Messiah? What's happened to the promises? Because the the promises that God made with His people, the Israelites, are not small promises. They're not, hey babe, I'd love to do the the dishes. I promise to do them. They're not like my promises to Sarah, which 50-50% of the time come through, right? They're, they're, They're eternal. Let me just read out one of the promises that God makes with David from 2 Samuel. He says, your house, that is the house of David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He's not talking about a finite period of time. He's talking about forever. And so we come to the New Testament. We're like, well, has forever finished? God, what are you doing with Israel? And we're not the only ones who are asking the question. Paul is asking the question too. It's actually his whole focus over the last three chapters. In Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11, he's been asking the question, is God finished with the Jews? Is God finished with Israel? Has God broken His promises to Israel? Has God rejected Israel? And he doesn't use small-time language. In the, the opening of Romans 9, he says, I wish I was in hell rather than witnessing the continuing rejection of Jesus by my fellow brothers and sisters. This is a heartbroken 
Paul, who's writing these words. And then in Romans 11, he starts to have this beautiful dialogue with himself. So let's pick up Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? And Paul's magnanimous, universal response is, by no means. And why can he say that? What bullets does he have in his arsenal about how God has not rejected his people? Well, the first one, he has three arguments. The first one is himself. Paul is the beautiful argument that God has not rejected the Israelites. Paul says, I am an Israelite. I am a descendant of Abraham. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Jew. He is a Jewish Jew. In fact, in Philippians, he boasts about how Jewish his Junus is. He's very Jewish, right? He's not like this part Roman dude. He's a Jew. And not just like a Jew. He is a Jew who has persecuted and murdered and dragged out Christians. He has persecuted the church. And yet Paul's pointing to himself as the example that God is not finished with Israel. Because we know, having read Acts, we know, having read Romans, that Paul was hunted out by God, that he was dragged off his donkey by God, that he was led into Damascus by God, and he was saved by God. This hardened Jewish religious man with blood on his hands was saved by grace. And so Paul puts this forward as his first argument, has God rejected Israel by no means? Then his second argument, he tells this classic story from the Old Testament about Elijah and King Ahab from verses 2 to 4. He said, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel, saying, Lord, you have ki- they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what he's referencing is this story in the Old Testament about King Ahab. King Ahab was a wicked king of Israel. He was a bad king of Israel. He's one of the worst kings, in fact. And he married this woman called Jezebel. You might have heard of her before. She was also not too great. But what he did by marrying Jezebel was he brought foreign gods and foreign influence into the kingdom of Israel and slowly but surely Ahab started worshipping Baal, a different god, to the point where he was tearing down the altars and killing all the prophets. And the prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, heard about this and he literally ran 29 kilometers to a cave. Right? He was that scared for his life. I don't know how scared you have to be to run for 29 kilometers, but I'm guessing like that's a pretty high level of fear, right? Maybe five, maybe ten, right? 29 kilometers. And so he gets to this cave, having heard of this plot for his life, and he cries out to God saying, They have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what is God's response? Verse 4. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even in this moment where God's foremost prophet feels alone, abandoned, and afflicted, 
God has preserved a remnant of people for himself. And Paul is probably casting himself in the role of Elijah, calling out, has God rejected Israel? I feel like I'm the only one left. And he's reminding himself as much as us, no, God maintains, preserves his people. He has preserved a remnant and he will in the future. And why can he say this? Well, his third argument is that he preserves his remnant by grace. It's not based on the inherent goodness or wickedness of Israel. It's not based upon the constitution of the people. It's not based upon the behavior of its leaders. It's based on the grace of God that has not only preserved, but maintains and saves them. Paul can say it because it's always been by grace that God saves his people. So we're stuck with the question then, if God, if God preserves a remnant for himself, if God's saving people like Paul, if it's always been by grace, then why is Israel turned away? Because the reality is that although there are men like Paul and Peter and the disciples, although there are many thousands turning to Jesus, the vast majority of Israel has rejected him, is hostile to him, is opposed to the message of grace. So we read in verse 7, What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain. But the elect did. The others were hardened. Israel has sought something which it has not obtained. And so the question then is for us, what was it searching for? Well, in the last chapter, Romans 10, verse 3, it outlines for us what Israel was searching for. And it says this, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So Israel was searching for righteousness. That is a right standing with God, a right uh, being with God, a right communication with God, a right communion with God, a right relationship with God, except they didn't want to do it by God's standards or by God's means or by God's ways. They wanted to do it in their own ways. And it's interesting, one of the definitive things, one of the definitive things that define who Israel is and who define who Christians are, is that both Christians and the Old Testament Jews were people of the promise. They were people who trusted the promise of God. It's one of the definitive practices that defines both of us. Because how do you become a Christian? You become a Christian because you trust the promises of God that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And how do you continue as a Christian? Well, you consider all the promises that God has made to his people and you claim them and you know that's definitely true. God is going to see me through to the end. And how do you end the Christian race? Well, you trust the promises that God will see through to completion what he started in us from Philippians. And it's the same for Jews. They trusted the promises of Abraham, of David, and of Solomon. But what God is saying is that had stopped trusting in the promises of God. The people of the promise had stopped trusting God. They had sought a righteousness of their own standing. And what happens when the promised people stop trusting in the promise? Well, the harrowing and difficult answer is that God hardens their hearts. Let's read in, in verse 8 to 10. God gave them a spirit of stupor that is drunkenness. Eyes so they could not see and ears so they could not hear to this very day. 
And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. God has hardened their hearts, hardened their eyes, hardened their ears so they cannot see, they cannot love, they cannot treasure and they cannot hear the gospel. And this upon first reading is a difficult thing to hear. God has hardened the hearts of his own people. This is a hard truth for us to dwell with. It's interesting that Paul in this moment is not merely coming up with these words. He's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah who is quoting Moses. Moses originally says some of these lines to Israel saying that in their rebellion, God will harden their hearts towards him if they continue in it. And Isaiah quotes Moses, adding that it will happen to this very day. There's a continuing hardening going on in response to God's people hardening their hearts. If you remember um, a couple of months ago, we're traveling through the book of Exodus, and we'll see what's going on with God and Pharaoh, that, that Pharaoh is hardening his heart towards God, and God simultaneously is hardening Pharaoh's heart toward God so that he won't respond. And so there's this simultaneous hardening going on, and it seems like there's something similar going on with Israel, that God has hardened their hearts, and Israel's hearts have been hardened by their rebellion. And it's really interesting, though. In verse 7, if we track back just a second, it says, what Israel sought so earnestly, they were seeking righteousness Earnestly, These were not people who were far off, who hated God. These were people who loved God. These were people who were searching for God, seeking to treasure Him, seeking to kill their sins, seeking to make all of life all about God. And it's those people that God has hardened and those people who God has hardened their eyes and their ears. And why is that? It's not that Israel was opposed to God. It's that Israel was opposed to grace. They're opposed to God's means and God's ways of being right with Him, and so God hardened their hearts. And it's interesting that as I look around at our cultural moment, I'm seeing masses of people who are not opposed to God, not opposed to the idea of God, not opposed to the idea of Christianity, but they are opposed to the idea of grace. See, I talk to my friends who would classify themselves as spiritual but not religious, right? And they're not opposed to spiritual forces. They're not opposed to a spiritual realm. They're not opposed to there being something more than they can see. They just don't, they're opposed to grace. They're opposed to the fact that righteousness is found in Jesus. They'd rather trust their tarot cards or their crystals or their horoscope readings. And then I, I talk to my friends who are Islamic, who are, who are Muslims, or Jews for that matter. Right? They've just finished Ramadan on Thursday. Right? And their discipline is incredible. Right? They wake up early and they fast from sundown to sun up every day. Right? They're not opposed to the idea of God. Like they, they, they're seeking God. They're trusting God. What they're opposed to is the idea of grace, that you don't earn God's favor based on your discipline or your behavior, but by on Jesus' discipline and Jesus' behavior and his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And the thing is that it's so easy for me to look at other people, but the truth is that I look at myself and I see the same very thing. I see a ceaselessness about my activity that reveals that I don't really trust the promises of God. 
See, Jesus says that all who are heavy and uh, heavy burden and heavy laden, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give your soul rest. And yet so often I find myself laid down by the pressures of work, by the pressures of life, by the pressures of marriage, because I'm not giving them to Jesus. I'm just continuing on. And what it reveals is that I not, in that moment, I'm not trusting the promises of God. I'm not opposed to God. I'm opposed to grace. So it's actually when we rest that we can't do anything for God. It's one of the most beautiful things about Christianity, that there's rest that God expects of us because God doesn't expect us to be able to do everything. He's in control, not us. And so we come to verse 11 to 12, and we come full circle. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, then how much greater riches will their fullness bring? We come full circle. Because the original question that Paul asks is, has God rejected the, the, the Israelites? Has God rejected his people? And Paul's answer is, by no means. So what's going on? Why of Israel? Well, they've hardened their hearts. Well, who hardened their hearts? God has. So Israel, God hasn't ha- rejected Israel, but he's hardened their hearts. What, God, what's going on? This seems like double speak, double talk. Because the reality is, is that rejection of Jesus by Israel is a tragic defeat for the gospel. It's a tragic defeat for Team Jesus. It's a tragic defeat for the Son of God. So how do we make sense of this? Especially as we consider that we hold a similar place to Israel in God's heart. That we are God's chosen people, right? The Bible describes us as a holy priesthood, a royal nation. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, sorry. And so, what does that mean for us if God has forsaken his promises with Israel, if God has rejected his people, if we're now his people and claim his promises? Does that mean that God will reject us and that his promises will be broken with us? It seems like to me, that from all I read of God in Romans 11, that all I hear about in the, the, the wider world of Scripture, that God seems like the type of general, that God seems like the type of leader who allows strategic, momentary defeats in order to secure eternal, glorious victories. Let's just let that sink in. God seems to allow strategic momentary defeats to secure eternal glorious victories. And I want you to hold that lens over the rest of Romans 11 as we work through. Because what does it say? Did Israel stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, because of their rebellion, because of their rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What's happened is that there is a tragic defeat for the gospel. God's chosen people has rejected God's chosen son. It's a tragic defeat for team Jesus. And yet God has used this tragic momentary defeat to secure for himself salvation for the Gentiles. We are Christians because of the rebellion of Israel. 
We are included in the kingdom of God because the Jews rejected Jesus. God has used this tragic momentary defeat to secure eternal glorious victories. And he will do it again. Because it says to make Israel envious. There is something about the salvation of Gentiles, of non-Jews, that has made Israel jealous. And God's using their jealousy to bring Israel back into the kingdom, to bring them back into the promise, to bring them back into God's fold. We read in verse 13 to 16, I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that, that I may arouse of my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. Paul is making this rich metaphor, this rich analogy where he's saying, I'm trying to make as much of my ministry as possible in order to make the Jews as jealous as possible in order to bring them about, back into the fold of God. And we actually see this again and again. Uh, our youth ministry has been tracking through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, verse by verse, for the first half of the term, and we see this classic scenario take hold. That Paul or Peter or John or Barnabas goes out to preach the gospel, and where do they go first? A synagogue. A synagogue is a Jewish temple. And at the Jewish temple, they proclaim the good news about Jesus, and some Jews convert, some Jews claim Jesus, but overwhelmingly, consistently, what we find is that Jewish people reject the gospel, reject Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John, and they cast them out. So Paul and Peter and Barnabas and John head out into the town, wherever they are, and they start proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, and we see mass conversions, and enormous amounts of people come in, and Israel becomes jealous as a response. Let me point some of these instances out from Acts chapter 13. It'll be on the screen. I'm just trying to find my place. There we go. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. He's speaking to Jewish believers or Jewish people in the synagogue. And he's saying, we had to speak the word of God to you first but since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God has proclaimed the gospel to the, to the, the Jewish people that have rejected him and he has in turn turned to the Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. Anyone uncircumcised? And it's interesting, actually, the response to the proclamation of the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem. Let me just point out some passages in Acts. What is their response? Acts chapter 5, 17. Then the high priests and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Then we go on. Acts chapter 13. Just, after what Paul, just before what Paul has said. 
when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Acts chapter 17, verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. And so they rounded up some bad characters. It sounds like a bad 1960s mob film, right? Getting, getting the gang together. From the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in the search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. It seems like the proclamation and the conversion of the gospel and the Gentiles has made Israel jealous, which is what Paul is saying anyway. So where do we take it from here? Well, it seems like there's three stages for Israel. It seems like there's a stage of rebellion against Jesus, against God, in which God has hardened their hearts. It seems like there's a stage of envy and jealousy towards Gentile Christians, and Jewish Christians for that matter. And it seems like there will be a moment in future history in which God will continue to yet fulfill His promises to Israel. It's interesting. If you look back again at verse 11, it says, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? By no means. Not at all. Israel is not yet beyond recovery. God has not rejected them. It seems like what will happen is that first the Jewish cohort of believers has brought the gospel to the Gentiles, and now it seems like the Gentile cohort of Christians all around the world will bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. So let's read on in verse 17 to 19. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Amen. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Just pause there. Way back when I was younger, when I was 20, 21, I worked as a landscaper. And one of the things that we got to do from time to time is horticulture, which is a fancy um, way of saying that we cut up trees and we made them look nice. But horticulture is way, way nicer than maintaining trees as a term. And so one of the things that you actually get to do is that um, often you'll cut down trees so that they grow again, but one of the things that you can do in trees that produce fruit is that you can cut it off at the base of a branch and bring another branch from a different fruit-producing tree and stick them together when they're fresh, when the sap's oozing out, and tie them all up, and over time, over the weeks and months, that branch will become part of the tree. And I used to think it was like magic. It's incredible, right? I don't believe in the magic of witches and wizards, but I do believe in the magic of apple trees. See, I like, I like apples. And one of the incredible things that you can see happen is that a tree which produces um, granny smiths, where you can cut off one of those branches and bring in a different branch from a golden delicious or from um, a, a pink lady or from the other types of um, apple trees, right? And so you can have an apple tree that's producing granny smiths and pink ladies and golden delicious and the, the other ones, Right? It's like a magic apple tree. It's incredible. Paul's making the same metaphor about us. That he has had this people for himself, this olive tree, in which he has pruned the branches back and grafted in this wild olive shoot and grafted it in to the point where it is now part of the tree. That's us. We are now part of the promises of the patriarchs. We are now part of Israel in some spiritual sense. But it's interesting what he says. Do not boast over those branches, verse 18. 
If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Paul's primary concern to Gentile Christians in Romans 11 is arrogance. And the only type of arrogance can come from us forgetting that it was not us who grafted ourselves into the tree. It was not us who saved ourselves from our sin. It was not us who believed in Jesus. It was God who did all these things in us. Right? God's in control. God is the root. God is the sustenance. God is the maintenance. It's all on Him. It had nothing to do with you. So don't be arrogant. And He comes with a warning in verse 20 to 24. Granted, they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Other translations have severity. I think severity is probably a, a better translation. Sternness slash severity to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. For if they did not persist in unbelief, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. That is Israel. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, if you were those who were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Paul is saying is this dire warning to those who would be arrogant that if God can break off, cast off, cut off natural branches of his tree, then do not think he will do the same to us if we continue in unbelief. It seems like that there was this level of arrogance by the Gentile Christians in the Roman church that Paul is trying to address who potentially were thinking, well, Israel were people of the promise, right? They've stopped trusting the promise. What, what fools, what idiots, how can they stop, have been stopped trusting in the promise? And in that moment, they're in a dire circumstance because in that moment, they stopped trusting in God and started trusting in themselves, what a smart, clever person I am. What a smart, clever gentle I am to accept the gospel. What a smart, clever person I am to accept grace, to trust in the promises of God. It is not about you. Our arrogance as Gentile Christians needs to die. And the solution Paul puts forward is to dwell on, to meditate on, to think on the kindness and the severity of God. Because if we dwell on the kindness that God has lavished upon us in the gospel, that he has saved us by his grace, not a work so that we can boast, as Ephesians says, but saved by grace through faith, nothing that we have done to earn this salvation, we'll be reminded that it's God's mercy that has kept us in the kingdom. And as we consider his severity towards those in unbelief, we'll be reminded of the stark nature that God is just. Yes, he will maintain, preserve his people, but do not think that you can mock God and get away with it. One of the most interesting conversations that I have on a semi-regular basis is with people who think that down the line sometime they can accept Jesus. 
Maybe when I'm old, maybe when I've made some money, maybe when I've had more sex, I've had more relationships, I've done what I want to do, then down the line I'll be able to accept God. That's when I'll, that's when I'll get right with God. And they do it with the breath that God gives them from the lungs that God gave them, from the mouth that God gave them, who at any single moment could cease our breath. Any moment, God could stop our breathing. Right? He is in control of the mountains and the waves and the galaxies. And yet we use these lungs to curse Him and to say, ah, I'll get right with God in a moment. Kill your sin. So what should our relationship with Israel be like? I think Charles Spurgeon says it well. He said, A Christian is the last person who ought ever to speak disrespectfully or unkindly of the Jews. A Christian is the last person who should feel any sense of superiority over the Jews. A Christian is the last person person who should have pride over Israel. Our response should be an excessive humility towards the things of Israel, towards the people of Israel, an excessive kindness and an excessive love towards them, reminding that God will save an enormous remnant, and we are coming to that now. Let's read from verses 25 to 30. And I've got to confess, this is the most tricky, difficult parts of Romans 11. Um, And so we're we're going to try and get through it. I'm going to try and do the controversy. It says this, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Excuse me. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant, my promise with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on them all. So what is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that all of Israel will be saved in the end? And it's led to a whole host of conclusions and concoctions about what Paul is saying. Is Paul saying that the Gentiles should just keep on being the Gentiles and that in the end Israel will sort of just be saved and there's sort of two plans of salvation? I don't think so. See, as we look at uh, different theologians throughout the week, we consult, I consult Bible commentaries and um, different people have different persuasions and often there's some li- really liberal Christians who are uh, I'm like, oh, I don't quite get on board with that and there's some really conservative Christians like, oh, I'm not quite on board with this. But the interesting thing is that almost all of them agree that when Paul is saying all Israel will be saved, he probably means all Israel will be saved. He's not misspeaking. What he is using though is something called a Semitic universalism, which is a word that you don't have to remember anymore. 
It's a long word, weird word. All it means is that often in uh, Jewish literature, when they describe all of Israel, they're not literally meaning every single person who is part of the nation of Israel. They are meaning all Israel. So F.F. Bruce says it like this. All Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew written without a single exception, but Israel as a whole. So when it says all Israel... It's like saying, all the church has gone for burgers. Well, one or two of us might not have gone for burgers, but if 95% of us went to go get burgers, you'd probably be like, Red Door's going to go get burgers. Right? It's the same thing going on. So what it means is that there will be a point in time when a great mass of Israel is converted to Jesus. And so the question becomes when and how, because there's two things that we want to avoid. One is universalism, one is pluralism. Universalism is the idea that in the end, everything works out and God saves everyone. That there's no hell, no judgment, no sin, no justice. We don't want to head there. But we can sort of semi-go there if we go, well, God has two plans, one for the Gentiles, one for Israel. God's going to save Israel in the end, but the Gentiles have to believe in grace and Jesus and follow and be obedient. We don't want to go there. We also don't want to go down pluralism. This idea that there's many roads to God, that someone can take like the Gentile path and believing in Jesus, and someone can take the, the Jewish path and you know, follow the Torah and follow the Tanakh and, and follow the law. We don't, we don't want to say that. So when and how will Israel be converted? Well, the when is a tricky topic, and I don't have the answer. All I know is that there will be a time in the future, when Israel, en masse, will have an experience of Jesus Christ as the risen Lord and Messiah, will respond to the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel, and there will be a great mass of Israel becoming part of God's kingdom once again because of it. It's interesting what we read in um, 31. They have, uh, sorry, uh, 30. You are at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. That's yours. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. It seems like the same mercy that we're receiving, both Jews and Gentiles. Because how many trees are there? There's one tree. There's not a Jewish tree and a Gentile tree. This crazy magic olive tree and like this strange wild Gentile tree. There's one tree, one plan of salvation, one thing that God's been doing from eternity past to eternity future. There's not two plans. God does not have a backup plan. He does not have a plan for failure. He does not have a plan B. He does not have a plan C or a plan Z. He has plan A from the beginning to the end where he will save people by grace through faith. How is Abraham saved? By faith. How is David saved? By faith. How is Peter saved? By faith. How is Paul saved? By faith. How am I saved? By faith. How will every single person in the future be saved by grace through faith in Jesus? What does that mean for us? It means that we wait expectantly for Israel. And not only wait, we pray and proclaim the gospel expecting responses. 
We pray for Israel, expecting that God will soften their partial hardness. We pray for Israel, like expecting that God will use Jesus, use the gospel, and use the mercy of the Gentiles in order to bring a great number of them to faith. And we do so expectantly, not with an air of superiority, but with an air of humility, knowing that it is grace that has saved us. And so where does that leave us as a church today? I want to focus on three things that we can take home. For the Christian this morning, do not forget that it seems like God is a God, a general leader who allows strategic momentary defeats for glorious victories in the end. Do not forget this. It helps make sense of suffering. It helps make sense of what's going on with Israel. It helps make sense of so much in our world. Although we might be experiencing a strategic momentary defeat, God is securing an eternal, glorious victory. We also remember that we need to trust the promises of God. Let us not become superior thinking that we have saved ourselves and make the same mistake as the Jews. Let us move forward trusting the promises of God, lest we become the promised people who have stopped trusting in the promises of God. And finally, we move forward expecting a mass of Jews to respond to the preaching and proclamation and prayer of the gospel and those who have been affected by the gospel. So let me pray for us right now to that end that we will be energized to see God for who He is, that we will be expectant with our Jewish brothers and sisters, and that as we praise God in a moment, we'll see Him and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this difficult, mysterious treasure of Romans 11. We thank You that You're the type of general who sees end to end that although there are things in our life and things in history that seems like tragic defeats for the gospel, you're actually securing eternal victories. And we eagerly await the salvation of Israel. Father, I pray for us that we as a church would continue to trust in the promises of God. That we would not forsake you. That you would preserve us by grace and in grace. And I pray that we would pray and preach with expectancy. Give us bold hearts to us Jewish brothers and sisters. Father, I also pray that by your spirit and by your word, you would encourage us and edify us to see you as glorious as you are in Romans 11. That we would see you as big and strong and mighty in suffering that when everything seems to have gone wrong, we continue to trust you and trust your promises. Give us a boldness that comes from you, a strength that comes from you, and an endurance that comes from you. Father, let us not be arrogant or prideful, but let us boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus. We pray this prayer, and everyone in the church said with one big, loud voice, Amen. Friends, there are going to be a number of people to the side who if you've been affected or you've got questions or you just want someone to pray with you, we can pray with you. But other than that, let us stand to our feet and worship God.